Part One of Chapter Four of The Abandoned Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Abandoned Room by Wadsworth Camp. Chapter 4, Section 1. A Strange Light Appears at the Deserted House. Graham's intention, logical as it was, impressed Bobby as quite futile. Silas Blackburn had died in this ancient melancholy room behind locked doors. This afternoon, with a repetition of the sounds that had probably accompanied his death, they had been drawn to find that behind locked doors again the position of the body had changed incredibly, as if to expose to them the tiny fatal wound at the base of the brain. Now, for the third time, those stealthy movements had aroused Catherine, and they had found, once more behind locked doors, the determined and malicious detective murdered precisely as old Blackburn had been. Of course, Graham was logical. By every rational argument, the murderer must still be in the room. Yet Bobby foresaw that, as always, no one would be found, that nothing would be unearthed to explain the succession of tragic mysteries. While Graham commenced his search, indeed he continued to stare at the little round hole in Howell's head, at the fresh irregular stain on the pillow, and he became absorbed in his own predicament. Again and again he asked himself if he could be responsible for these murders which had been committed with an inhuman ingenuity. He knew only that he had wandered, unconscious, in the vicinity of the cedars last night, that he had been asleep when his grandfather's body had altered its position, that he had gone to sleep a little while ago too profoundly, brooding over Howell's challenge to the murderer to invade the room of death and kill him if he could. Howells had been confident that he could handle a man and so solve the riddle of how the room had been entered. Certainly Howells's challenge had been accepted, and Bobby knew that he had fallen into that deep sleep, hating the detective, telling himself that the man's death might save him from arrest, from conviction, from an intolerable walk to a little room with a single chair. Recurrent aphasia, the doctor's expression came back to him. In such a state, a man could overcome locked doors, could accomplish apparent miracles and retain no recollection. And Bobby had hated and feared Howells more than he had his grandfather. Dully, he saw Catherine go out at Graham's direction. As one in a dream, he moved toward the door they had had to break down on entering. Stand close to it, Graham said. We'll cover everything. You'll find no one, Bobby answered with a perfect assurance. He saw Graham take the candle and explore the large closets. He watched him examine the spaces behind the window curtains. He could smile a little as Graham stooped, peering beneath the bed, as he moved each piece of furniture large enough to secrete a man. You see, Hartley, 
It's no use. Graham's lack of success, however, stimulated his anger. Then, he said, there must be some hiding place in the walls. Such devices are common in houses as old as this. Bobby indicated the silent form of the detective. He believed I killed my grandfather. The only reason he didn't arrest me was his failure to find out how the room had been entered and left. Don't you suppose he looked for a hiding place or a secret entrance the first thing? It's obvious. But Graham's savage determination increased. He sounded each panel. None gave the slightest revealing response. He got a tape from Catherine and measured the dimensions of the room, the private hall, and the corridor. At last he turned to Bobby, his anger dead, his face white and tired. Everything checks, he admitted. There's no secret room, no way in or out. Logically, Groom's right. We're fighting the dead who resent the intrusion of your grandfather and Howells. He laughed mirthlessly. After all, we can't surrender to that. There must be another answer. From the first, Howells was satisfied with me, Bobby said. Graham flung up his hands. Then tell me how you got in without disturbing those locks. I grant you, Bobby, you had sufficient motive for both murders. But I don't believe you have two personalities, one decent and lovable, the other cruel and cunning to the point of magic. I don't believe if a man had two such personalities, the actions of one would be totally closed to the memory of the other. Bobby smiled wanly. It isn't pleasant to confess it, Hartley, but I have read of such cases. Fiction. Scientific fact. I wish to the devil I had shared your room with you tonight, Graham muttered. I might have furnished you an alibi for this affair at least. Either that, Bobby answered frankly, or you might have followed me and learned the whole secret. Honestly, isn't that what you're thinking of, Hartley? And I did go to sleep, telling myself it would help me if something of the sort happened to Howells. Now I'm not so sure that it will. I... I suppose you've got to notify the police. Graham held up his hand. What's that? In the corridor. There were quiet footsteps in the corridor. Bobby turned quickly. Peretti strolled slowly through the passage. A cigarette held in his slender, listless fingers. Bobby stared at him, remembering his surprise a few minutes ago that the Panamanian should have sat up so late. Should have been, probably, in the court when they had followed Catherine to the discovery of this new crime. Paredes paused in the doorway. He took in the tragic picture framed by the sinister room without displaying the slightest interest. He continued to hold his cigarette until it expired. Then he crossed the threshold. Graham and Bobby watched the expressionless face. Gracefully, Paredes raised his finger and pointed to the bed. When he spoke, his voice was low and pleasant. Appalling! I fear something of the kind when I heard you come to this room. He glanced at the broken door. The same unbelievable circumstance, he drawled. I see you had to break in. The color flashed back to Graham's face. You have taken plenty of time to solve your misgivings. 
It hasn't been so long. I fancied everything was all right, and I was immersed in my solitaire. Then I heard a stirring upstairs. As I told you, the house frightens me. It is not natural or healthy. So I came up to investigate this stirring, and there was Miss Catherine in the hall. She told me. Graham faced him with undisguised enmity. Immersed in your solitaire? We were attracted by a light in the lower hall at such an hour. We looked down. You were not there. The front door was open. Paredes glanced at his cold cigarette. He yawned. When Howells died precisely as Mr. Blackburn did, Graham hurried on. You alone were awake about the house. Weren't you at that moment in the court? Paredes laughed tolerantly. It is clear, in spite of my apologies, that we are not friends, Graham. But may I ask you, are you accusing me of this strange accident? I should like to know what you were doing in the court. Perhaps, Paredes answered, I was attracted there by the sounds that aroused Miss Catherine. Graham shook his head. From her description, I doubt if those sounds would have been audible in the hall. No matter, Paredes said. I merely suggest that it's a case for Groom. His hint of a spiritual enmity may be saner than you think. Catherine appeared in the doorway. She had evidently overheard Paredes' comment, for she nodded. The determination in her eyes suggested that she had struggled with the situation during these last moments and had reached a definite conclusion. That quality was in her voice. At least, Hartley, she said, you must send for Dr. Groom before you notify the police. Graham waved his hand. Why? he asked. The man is dead. With a movement hidden from Paredes, she indicated Bobby. Last time there was a good deal of delay before the doctor came. If we get him right away, he may be able to do something for this poor fellow. At least his advice would be useful. Bobby realized that she was fighting for time for him. Any delay would be useful that would give them a chance to plan before the police with unimaginative efficiency should invade the house and limit their opportunities. Graham showed that he caught her point. Maybe it's better, he said. Then, Bobby, telephone groom to be ready for you and take my runabout. It's in the stable. You'll get him here much faster than he could come in his carriage. While I'm gone, Bobby asked, what will you do? Watch this room, Graham jerked out. See that no one enters or leaves it or touches the body. I'll hope for some clue. You've plenty of courage, Paredes drawled. I shouldn't care to watch alone in this room. He followed Catherine into the corridor. Bobby looked at Graham. You'll take no chances, Hartley. Graham's smile wasn't pleasant. According to you and the dead detective, there's no risk while you're out of the house. Still, I shall be nervous, but don't worry. Bobby joined the others before they had reached the hall. Of course Hartley found nothing, Catherine said to him. Nothing, Paredes answered, except a very bad temper. 
Catherine's distaste for the man was no longer veiled. You don't like Mr. Graham, she said, but he is our friend, and he is in this house to help us. Paredes bowed. I regret that the amusement Mr. Graham causes me sometimes finds expression. He is so earnest, so materialistic in his relation to the world. That is why he will see nothing psychic in the situation. Paredes' easy contempt was like a tonic for Catherine. Her fear seemed to drop from her. She turned purposefully to Bobby, ignoring the Panamanian. I shall watch with Hartley, she said. He was ashamed that jealousy should creep into such a moment, but her resolve recalled his amorous discontent. The prospect of Graham and her, watching alone, drawn to each other by their fright and uncertainty, by their surrounding, by the hour, became unbearable. It placed him to an extent on Paredes' side. It urged him, when Paredes had gone on downstairs, to spring almost eagerly to his defense. As Hartley says, Catherine began, he makes you think of a snake. He must see we dislike and resent him. You and Hartley, perhaps, Bobby said. Carlos says he's here to help me. I've no reason to disbelieve him. A little color came into Catherine's face. She half stretched out her hand as if in an appeal, but the color faded and her hand dropped. We are wasting time, she said. You had better go. I am sorry we disagree about Carlos, he commenced. She turned deliberately away from him. You must hurry, she said. Hurry. He saw her enter the corridor to join Graham. The obscurity of the narrow place seemed to hold for him a new menace. He walked downstairs slowly. While he telephoned, instructing a servant to tell the doctor to be dressed and ready in twenty minutes, he saw Paredes go to the closet and get his hat and coat. I shall keep you company, the Panamanian announced. Bobby was glad enough to have him. He didn't want to be alone. He was aware by this time that no amount of thought would persuade useful memories to emerge from the black pit. They walked to the stable, half gone to ruin like the rest of the estate. Bobby started Graham's car. The servants' quarters, he saw, were dark. Then Jenkins and the two women hadn't been aroused, were still ignorant of the new crime. As they drove smoothly past the gloomy house, they glimpsed through the court the dimly lit windows of the old room that persistently guarded its grim secret. Bobby pictured the living as well as the dead there, and his mind revolted and he shivered. He opened the throttle wider. The car sprang forward. The divergent glare from the headlights forced back the reluctant thickets. Paredes drawled unexpectedly. There is nothing as lonely anywhere in the world. He stooped behind the windshield and lighted a cigarette. At least, Bobby, he said between puffs, the cedars has taken from you the fear of howls. And after a time, staring at the glow of his cigarette, he went on softly. Have you noticed anything significant about the discovery of each mystery at the Cedars? Many things, Bobby muttered. Think, Paredes urged him. Bobby answered angrily. 
You've suggested that to me once today, Carlos. You mean that each time I've been asleep or unconscious? I mean something quite different, Paredes said. He hesitated. When he continued, his drawl was more pronounced. Then you haven't remarked that each time it's been Miss Catherine who has made the discovery, who has aroused the rest of the house. The car swerved sharply. Bobby's first impulse had been to take his hands from the wheel, to force Paredes to retract his sly insinuation. That's the rottenest thing I've ever known you to do, Carlos. Take it back. Paredes shrugged his shoulders. There is nothing to take back. I accuse no one. I merely call attention to a chain of exceptional coincidences. You make me wonder, Bobby said, if Hartley isn't justified in his dislike of you. You'll kill such a ridiculous suspicion. Or, Paredes drawled, very well. It seems my fate recently to offend those I like best. I merely thought that any theory leading away from you would be welcome. Any theory, Bobby answered, involving Catherine is unthinkable. Peretti smiled. I didn't understand exactly how you felt. I rather took it for granted that Graham... Never mind, I take it back. Then drop it, Bobby answered sullenly, sorry that there was nothing else he could say. They continued in silence through the deserted forest, whose aggressive loneliness made words seem trivial. Bobby was asking himself again where he had stood last night, when he had glimpsed for a moment the straining trees and the figure in the mask which he had called his conscience. If he could only prove that figure substantial, then Graham would have some ground for his suspicion of Paredes and the dancer Maria. He glanced at Paredes. Could there have been a conspiracy against him in the New York cafe? Did Paredes, in fact, have some devious purpose in remaining at the Cedars? The automobile took a sharp curve in the road. Bobby started, gazing ahead with an interest nearly hypnotic. The headlights had caught in their glare the deserted farmhouse in which he had awakened just before Howells had told him of his grandfather's death and practically placed him under arrest. In the white light, the frame of the house from which the paint had flaked appeared ghastly, unreal, like a structure seen in a nightmare from which one recoils with morbid horror. The light left the building. As the car tore past, Bobby could barely make out the black mass in the midst of the thicket. Paredes had observed it, too. I dare say, he remarked casually, the cedars will become as deserted as that. It is just that it should, for the entire neighborhood impresses one as unfriendly to life, as striving through death to drive life out. Have you ever seen that house before? Bobby asked quickly. I have never seen it before. I do not care ever to see it again. It was a relief when the forest thinned and the fields stretched, flat and pleasant, like barriers against the stunted growth. Bobby stopped the car in front of one of a group of houses at the crossroads. He climbed the steps and rang. Dr. Groom opened the door himself. His gigantic, hairy figure was silhouetted against the light from within. 
What's the matter now? He demanded in his gruff voice. Fortunately, I hadn't gone to bed. I was reading some books on psychic manifestations. Who's sick? Or... Bobby's face must have told him a great deal, for he broke off. Get your things on, Bobby said, and I will tell you as we drive back, for you must come. Howells has been killed precisely as my grandfather was. For a moment, Dr. Groom's bulky frame remained motionless in the doorway. Instead of the surprise and horror Bobby had foreseen, the old man expressed only a mute wonder. He got his hat and coat and entered the runabout. Paredes made room for him, sitting on the floor, his feet on the running board. Bobby had told all he knew before they had reached the forest. The doctor grunted then. The wound at the back of the head was the same as in your grandfather's case? Exactly. Then what good am I? Why am I routed out? A formality, Bobby answered. Catherine thought if we got you quickly you might do something. Anyway, she wanted your advice. The woods closed about them. Again the lights seemed to push back a palpable barrier. I can't work miracles, the doctor was murmuring. I can't bring men back to life. Such a wound leaves no ground for hope. You'd better have sent for the police at once. Hello? He strained forward, peering around the windshield. Funny, Paredes called. Bobby's eyes were on the road. What do you see? The house, Bobby, Paredes cried. No one, to my certain knowledge, the doctor said, has lived in that house for ten years. You say it was empty and falling to pieces when you woke up there this morning. Bobby knew what they meant then, and he reduced the speed of the car and looked ahead to the right. A pallid glow sifted through the trees from the direction of the deserted house. Bobby guided the car to the side of the road, stopped it, and shut off the engine. At first, no one moved. The three men stared as if in the presence of an unaccountable phenomenon. Even when Bobby had extinguished the headlights, the glow failed to brighten. Its pallid quality persisted. It seemed to radiate from a, a point close to the ground. It comes from the front of the house, Bobby murmured. He stepped from the automobile. What are you going to do, Paredes wanted to know. Find out who is in that house. For Bobby had experienced a quick hope. If there was a man or a woman secreted in the building, the truth as to his own remarkable presence there last night might not be so far to seek after all. There was, moreover, something lawless about this light escaping from the place at such an hour. A little while ago, when Paredes and he had driven past, the house had been black. They had remarked its lonely, abandoned appearance. It had led Paredes to speak of the neighborhood as the domain of death. Yet the strange, pallid quality of the light itself made him pause by the broken fence, it did come from the lower part of the front of the house, yet, so faint was it, it failed to outline the aperture through which it escaped. The doctor and Paredes joined him. When I was here, he said, all the shutters were closed. This glow is too white, too diffused. We must see. As he started forward, Paredes grasped his arm. There are too many of us. 
We would make a noise. Suppose I creep up and investigate. There is one way in. At the back, Bobby told the doctor. Let us go there. We'll have whoever's inside trapped. Meantime, Carlos, if he wishes, we'll steal up to the front. He'll find out where the light comes from. He'll look in if he can. That's the best plan, Paredes agreed. But they had scarcely turned the corner of the house, beyond reach of the glow, when Paredes rejoined them. His feet were no longer careful in the underbrush. He came up running. For the first time in their acquaintance, Bobby detected a, a lessening of the man's suave, unemotional habit. The light, the Panamanian gasped. It's gone. Before I could get close, it faded out. Bobby called to the doctor and ran toward the door at the rear. It was unhinged and half opened as it had been when he had awakened to his painful and inexplicable predicament. He went through, fumbling in his pockets for matches. The damp chill of the hall nauseated him as it had done before, seemed to place about his throat an intangible band that made breathing difficult. Before he could get his match safe out of the doctor had struck a wax vesta. Its strong flame played across the dingy streaked walls. There's a flashlight, Carlos, Bobby said, in the door flap of the automobile. End of chapter 4, section 1 of The Abandoned Room